0: Lord Jesus, would you help us to feel afresh, to feel afresh the the weight of what it is you did for us, your faithfulness to the faithless, your faithfulness on a night where you were betrayed by those closest to you, where you were treated unfairly, unjustly, and where you did not shrink back, and where you were so faithful that you ensured that the cross would happen. Would you show us again the wonder of your heart filled with love for sinners like us? We pray all this in your mighty name. Amen. Hanging in a museum in Amsterdam is a painting by a guy named Rembrandt. It was painted in 1660. It's called The Denial of Saint Peter. Beautiful, very famous painting for a reason. It captures so beautifully this scene before us. Peter denying Jesus three times. Your eye is meant to be drawn to Peter's face. He looks as if he's anxious. Maybe he's been caught in the middle of something. There are three accusers. They each have their finger pointed at Peter. And then off in the distance on the right side of the painting, you can barely even see it because of how dark it is, you there's Jesus, and he's looking at Peter as this all unfolds. It's a wonderful artistic depiction of a true event. Jesus' is very closest, bravest of all disciples, Peter, denying him three times. A moment of testing and a moment of grand failure. Now, I don't think Rembrandt as wonderful as an artist as he was, could have thought that up on his own. No, he's an artist taking cues from other artists. Those artists that brought to us the very Gospels themselves, they recorded what was true, but using the tools of not the paintbrush, but of the pen, they intended to draw our mind's eye to certain things. Each of the Gospels records for us this interaction of Peter and yeah, those uh, asking him about Jesus, uh, Jesus before the religious leaders in this trial. Each of them records these things, but they don't record the same things. And John's recording, very specifically, is designed to do something for us. It's to show us two portraits in contrast to each other. The first portrait is of faithless Peter, of Peter in his moment of testing and failure. We see that in in two sections, 12 through 18 and 25 through 27. They're kind of sandwiching the second portrait, that of faithful Jesus. That's in 19 through 26. So that's how we'll, we'll go through this passage this morning. We'll first look at the portrait of faithless Peter, the dark, despicable portrait that it is. And then we'll turn our attention to the glorious portrait of faithful Jesus and find all the grace that sinners like us could ever need. Let's begin by looking at that first portrait, the portrait of faithless Peter. John begins us in this section right where we left off. We were in the Garden of Gethsemane last week, if you were with us. And then in verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas for he was father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Before we get to the two portraits, they, we need to know of a shared background that they both share. Uh, John tells us uh, the, the basics of it in that little transition narrative. Jesus gets arrested by the 600 plus soldiers, both Romans and the religious authorities, the temple guards, they, they take him, they bind him, and then they bring him to a specific place. It's the estate of the high priest. And this is really important to, to know background wise. There was one estate shared by two men that are both called high priests, both of whom had a different legal proceeding with Jesus this evening. Uh, the first of those men is named Annas. Annas was the high priest that was famously deposed by the Romans. That is, the high priests were expected to serve for l- a lifetime. Yet the Romans didn't like the idea of one man having so much sway over the religious people and, and, uh, and the Jews that day. So they saw to it that Annas was removed from office and appointed other high priests in his stead. There were several of them during Annas's lifetime. The current high priest, his name was Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas would have been the nexus of uh, legal and political power in his day. He was the head of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is uh, both a judicial and legislative body. It's kind of like the Supreme Court and Congress and the Senate rolled into one. Caiaphas was the one who officially had the power. And yet Annas, Annas organically had much of the power still. Uh, That's because many Jews thought of Annas as the official high priest. So they would even refer to him as high priest Annas, even though he no longer held that office. A a little bit like how we would refer to a president that is uh, no longer in office, like President Obama or President Bush. They retain that title. A little bit like that. But even more so because if you were a religious Jew and you wanted to thumb your nose at the Romans you could do so by saying, well, Annas is really our high priest. So all that's to say that Annas was a very significant figure, someone who would be called high priest, and Jesus will be brought to him for his uh, first legal proceeding, we'll see in a moment. But the other important thing is that Annas and Caiaphas shared a high priest estate. It was a beautiful estate that was overlooking the Temple Mount. They had their own chambers, the, it's very opulent. And in the middle was a shared courtyard. And that courtyard is the setting for Peter's testing and failure. So all of this is happening. All of the, our passages this morning is happening in this uh, state of the two high priests and in their shared courtyard. Now that brings us to verse 15 where we see Peter entering that courtyard. Simon Peter followed Jesus And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. Now, you need to understand what's happening here. There's Peter and there's another disciple. That disciple's not named. I think it's most likely the apostle John who wrote for us this gospel that we're reading this morning. John, as I'm assuming it is, is able to get into the courtyard. He had some sort of connection, maybe a familial connection, maybe just because he ran in the right social circles. But for whatever reason, he's allowed into this courtyard following this group of soldiers that usher Jesus into Annas' chambers. But there's a problem because Peter, on the other hand, is not known by the people of this uh, high priest's estate. And so Peter can't get past the front door. So this ends up being the moment where Peter is first tested. Verse 16, but Peter stood outside the door so that the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And then he brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So Peter can't get in. John sees what's happening, he goes back, he, he puts a word in this servant girl's ear who's manning the door, she, she lets Peter in, but not so fast. On his way in, Peter gets stopped and asked a question. Now, on its surface, it doesn't seem that Peter has much of a test in front of him. He doesn't have the most imposing interrogator that you can imagine. A, a servant girl back then was not someone of high social standing, She would have had no authority. Very few people would have cared what she thought about anything. Even the way she asks the question is tilted in a way so that Peter has kind of an easy out. She she essentially says something along the lines of, you're not one of them, are you? With the expected answer, very obvious, no, no, I'm not. It's about as easy of a test as you could imagine. And yet Peter fails utterly. Maybe the words just slipped right off of his tongue so easily he hardly knew it even happened. Very short, his response, no, I am not. So often, the first sin seems so easy. And only through repetition and subsequent failures do the consequences and the pain start to multiply. In that moment at the door, Peter took his first step Through a door of betrayal, took his first step down a road that will be the greatest sorrow in his life. He would betray his friend, Jesus. John tells us afterwards some more details about that night. Verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It's cold in Jerusalem during the spring, especially between midnight and 3 a.m. when this would have been happening. They had a fire, they were warming themselves, but I can't help but think that the shiver running down Peter's spine wasn't just caused by the temperature outside. I think in God's providence, Peter maybe had a, a slight sense of the road he was headed down. And friends, it is a a cold, cold road indeed. Well, again, this failure of Peter is sandwiched around the faithfulness of Jesus, which we'll come back to in a second. But for now, let's skip down to verse 25 and watch the second two steps of testing that that Peter has. Verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. We're not told who it is that notices him this time. It's a nameless person. He's around the fire. Maybe the the fire kicks up brighter for just a second and a spark illuminates his face and someone thinks they notice someone that they saw standing with Jesus. His denial is almost exactly the same. I am not. He has one more chance in verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? His final test is an eyewitness. Maybe one of the other soldiers or temple officials, he he was there when a relative of his actually had his ear cut off by Peter. Peter has been fingered in this moment. You might think that that bravado and bravery that was his in the garden would surface back up. Instead, his response is, frankly, pathetic. Once more, a third time, he denies that he even knows Jesus. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. As we're so familiar with what Peter did that it can be easy to lose the the horrific nature of it, just how heinous it really is. I mean, think of how much it hurts when someone betrays you in your life. Someone who's close to you that you counted on for something, and in your moment of greatest need, maybe they don't come through for you. Maybe you trusted them with something, and they, instead of using that thing the way that was intended, they actually use it to harm you. We know how offended we are, how, how deep we feel that pain. The closer someone is to us, the the more it hurts when they betray us. Consider how important this moment was in Jesus' life. Things had gone fairly well while they were out and about with his preaching ministry and his miracles. And yet, here he is, in chains, being questioned by the authorities. If there was ever a time where Jesus needed the support of his disciples, this is it. And yet, brave, brash Peter, he can't even muster up enough courage to say, yeah, I know Jesus before a servant girl or before someone who even saw him wielding a sword to defend Jesus. This is the betrayal of the highest order. Friends, none of us should ever aspire to betray someone that badly And yet, let's realize as badly as Peter fails, that none of this takes Jesus by surprise. Because even in this portrait of failure, we see in faithless Peter, there's actually a prophecy being fulfilled from the very lips of Jesus. Maybe remember back to chapter 13. Jesus had just gotten done washing his disciples' feet in this beautiful token of love to show his service to them. Judas had decided what he was going to do to Jesus. And then there was this back and forth between Jesus and Peter, where Peter asked Jesus, well, why can't I go where you're going, Jesus? And this is what he said verse 37. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter talks a big, brave game. He will be with Jesus to the end, even to give up his life for Jesus. But Jesus, he knows better. He tells Peter precisely what he will do, and he tells him even the second he will do it. Think of the precision required by that prophecy for Peter's third denial to happen right before the rooster crows. Once again, we see what Jesus says happens. Jesus here prophesied that his closest, most brave and brash of disciples would, in his greatest moment of testing, fail utterly. But the ugliness of the portrait of Peter is not meant just to be here to make us wallow in it. It's meant to be used as a contrast to show us the beauty of the faithfulness of another portrait, the portrait of faithful Jesus. That's what we see in 19 through 26. We see the faithfulness of Jesus toward sinners that even betray him. Verse 19, we are brought into this hearing with Annas. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, it's important to note that this would not be what we considered a official hearing. Again, Annas was not officially anyone except a former high priest. He could not convict Jesus of anything. And yet, Annas wielded incredible power. If there was a man behind the power structures in Jerusalem in that day, it would be Annas. And so while there's no legal requirement for this hearing, this hearing has incredible importance. If there's anyone that can change the direction that this train is rolling, it is Annas. So the way that Jesus interacts with Annas will reveal a lot about what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Now, it's also important to know why this unsanctioned, like not actual uh, sort of hearing would be happening. The Sanhedrin, which is where Jesus does need to be convicted for, uh, for him to be executed, the Sanhedrin required a, a quorum or a, a minimum number of their members to be gathered for them to be able to make any sort of decisions. And that's not the sort of thing you can just snap your fingers and make happen. It's very likely that Caiaphas and all of his associates are out in the middle of the night trying to get enough Sanhedrin members together in order to be able to have this trial for Jesus. In the meantime, though, Jesus is in front of Annas. And realize that Jesus here has an opportunity. If he decides that he wants to stop this, if he wants to change the direction that this thing is going, Annas is the man that can make that happen. But look what Jesus does. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't deny. No, Jesus simply speaks the truth and insists that this be brought to its end. Because Jesus has come to die. Look at the way he responds to Annas. He was asked about his disciples and his teaching. He responded, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus' response to Annas is along two lines. First, he tells Annas that he has not said anything in secret that he hasn't said in private. This was likely a way of Jesus protecting his disciples. Annas might have been worried that Jesus had said one thing in public, and then in private was actually teaching something that would lead his disciples toward a rebellion of some sort. Jesus says, though, that what he said in public and what he says in private they're consistent with one another. They're basically the same thing. And that would have uh, would have shielded his disciples from further scrutiny in that moment. Now, you may be asking, is that actually true though? I mean, didn't Jesus teach a lot of things to his disciples that he didn't teach in public? Like, didn't he explain parables and things like that only to his disciples? Well, I think it's important to use the parameters that Jesus is using here. He is simply saying that he did not have two different messages he just had one message that was revealed in varying degrees. One in public, one in private to his disciples. The second thing that Jesus says here is that he is insisting on a, uh, a legal trial that only the Sanhedrin can bring about. Now that, that's what you, you see there in that uh, section where Jesus talks about um, the why are you asking me verse 21. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said. They know what I said. The expectation in a trial before the Sanhedrin was not that anyone would question the accused. Now we think of our modern trials, the the most dramatic moment is if the defendant takes the stand or we get testimony from the defendant. We want to hear it from the person themselves. But back then that was not what was expected. In fact, there were rules forbidding the accused from being questioned. You were instead supposed to bring forth witnesses both for and against the person being accused. If you were with us as we studied John's gospel earlier, you might remember that Jesus often would have to defend himself against this accusation that he was witnessing about himself. That's because under Jewish law, you were supposed to bring witnesses on your behalf and those accusing you of something were supposed to bring witnesses against you. What Jesus is saying here to Annas is essentially, I won't play your game. I'm not going to give you some deflecting reason. I'm not going to try and redirect this. Bring me to the Sanhedrin. Bring your witnesses forward. You know exactly what I said. This is Jesus unflinching, knowing exactly what's coming, ensuring he goes precisely where he needs to go to be convicted to be sentenced to death, and to be executed. Now, if we had any doubt how this would be received, verse 22 removes it. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now, there were rules strictly forbidding doing that to anyone that was in custody. And yet, it's obvious they can do what they want. Talk back to the high priest when he wants you to answer smack. That's uh, the first of many blows that Jesus would receive. John only records this hearing with Annas. But from the other gospels, we know what his, his trial before the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas was like. He was beaten, mocked again and again until his, his face was messed up to the point you couldn't even tell who he was anymore. Jesus, enduring all this, has done nothing wrong. And that's what his response, to, uh, verse 23, is saying. Uh, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about what's wrong. But if what if I said is right, why do you strike me? He's not accusing anyone of anything. He's not trying to de- defend himself or deflect. He's just saying, this is, this is not the way it's supposed to go down. Use your witnesses to convict me. Friends, you see how much restraint Jesus has in this moment. If anyone has the right to be upset, it's him. The outcome of this proceeding and the trial that's to come, it, it is completely a charade. He is being railroaded and he knows it. And yet Jesus won't say anything untrue. Jesus won't try and escape this thing. This is the very thing he came for, to suffer and die. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We see here the portrait of the faithful Savior as he is in the hands of wicked men and mistreated as even a criminal doesn't deserve to be. And yet even as this happens, this beautiful portrait of the faithfulness of Jesus, there's also another prophecy behind it. Did you catch that back in verse 14? John alludes to something that he already established back in chapter 11, verse 14. He said, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Back when this whole plot was hatched months ago, Caiaphas had made a very cold, calculated sort of uh, maneuver. He had convinced the rest of the Jewish elites that it would be best if Jesus died, if that meant that they kept their power, and if that meant that the nation endured. Of course, the irony of this is that even their scheming would not undo what was coming in AD 70. The Romans would come and conquer and destroy everything. But there was an even deeper irony. Because John tells us that Caiaphas unknowingly spoke a prophecy in that moment that the very thing they were doing to get rid of their enemy Jesus is actually a prophecy of how Jesus will accomplish his moment of greatest glory. How he will arrive at the culmination of his mission, the very cross of Calvary. So what do we see in this d- dark portrait? is not just the victimization of Jesus. No, we see Jesus being obedient to the very end making sure nothing would turn him away from the very thing he came to this earth for, to die for sinners. It's a beautiful portrait of the Savior. It's even more beautiful when you put it up next to the failure of Peter. Like two images that you put next to each other so you could see the differences more vividly. If you put these two portraits next to each other, Look what pops out. Peter is tested with some light questioning, and he fails. Yet, think of the weight of what Jesus withstood before the most powerful, most cruel of his enemies. Peter, he hid in the shadows, trying to avoid being caught, trying to avoid any sort of discomfort. And yet, Jesus, he made sure that he was found, and he does nothing to try and escape. He wants the whole world to see him hanging in broad daylight on the cross. Peter, in his moment of testing, lost heart. Jesus, in his moment of testing, revealed a heart full of love and mercy. Peter ultimately would not lay his life down for Jesus. Jesus but Jesus would lay his life down for Peter and for every sinner that followed after him. Brothers and sisters, what we see in this portrait is the faithfulness of a Savior that none of us deserved and that all of us need. Now, of course, Peter's story is not done here. We will get to the fullness of his redemption and the sweetness of it in the chapters ahead. But for now, it's important for us to notice that Peter's redemption will not come about through him paying for his own sins. It won't come about by him giving up his own life. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. I was uh, re-traveling some well-worn paths uh, through the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I came across a a parallel I hadn't seen before. One of the characters, uh, Boromir, I I think is actually supposed to echo a lot of Peter. Uh, Boromir was one of the members of the fellowship. He was a great warrior. He was bold and brash. And at a moment of testing where he was sworn to protect the hobbits and the ring they were carrying, he failed. He tried to instead take the ring for himself. Boromir comes to his senses. He has this moment of repentance where he's weeping. And then Boromir has his moment of redemption. Instead of dying in his uh, shame, Boromir dies in valor. He, he actually gives his life so that the hobbits could potentially escape. I, I hadn't noticed this detail. As Boromir is laying there dying, Aragorn comes to him, and they're talking, and Boromir says this line. He says, I have paid. I have paid. I think Tolkien very intentionally has so much of Peter's life in Boromir, and, and yet at the most crucial of all moments, he, he twists it and he lets Boromir pay the penalty for his own sin. I think so many of us think of the way that we achieve redemption the same way. We remember the guilt of having made promises to God that we did not keep. We remember resolving never ever to do that again and find ourselves right back in the same place we were. We know what it is to pledge ourselves to the Lord and live for ourselves. And we know the shame of it. And our hearts naturally want to suffer enough to be worthy of redemption. But that's not how Peter finds redemption, is it, friends? Now Peter finds redemption through the death of Jesus. And that means you and I find forgiveness and redemption the same way. Now don't get me wrong, none of us should want to be like Peter. None of us should ever want to publicly or so dramatically deny Jesus and forsake our Savior. In fact, if you are a young person here this morning, if I say if you're under the age of 30, I think you are living at a time where your generation will have to face this trial more acutely than the last five or six that have come before it. You will have to answer the question, will you give in to societal pressure or will you stick with Jesus? Resolve right now. You will not deny Jesus. There is nothing that you would regret more than to remember a moment where you pretended that you never knew the Savior who saved you. Now, as important as that is, though, I think it's more important for us to realize how much we are like Peter. How many times we have failed to be faithful servants to Jesus, to witness to Jesus, to keep our promises to Jesus. And friends, that brings us back to the same question. How many times will Jesus forgive us? Well, the good news is, friend, is that Jesus didn't just die for Peter. He died for sinners like you and me. And that means our faithful savior is a savior full of forgiveness to anyone who repents and comes back to him. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is not that you can suffer enough to work off your debt to God. That if you just deprive yourself of enough or live well enough that God says your good outweighs your bad. No, the, the gospel is that the king of the world, Jesus, who did, never did anything wrong, he came and willingly gave his life as a substitute for faithless sinners like you and me. We don't do anything except fall at his feet with tears in our eyes and with open hands and receive the forgiveness that he so freely gives. Peter is a beautiful example of every Christian because every Christian is in need of the for saving forgiveness That only Jesus can bring. Pastor John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote a hymn about this failure of Peter and about the repentance that Peter knew so so well and that every believer knows firsthand. He said this As I, like Peter, vows have made, yet acted Peter's part, so conscience like the cock upbraids my base ungrateful heart. Lord Jesus, hear a sinner's cry, my broken peace renew, and grant me one pitying look that I may weep with Peter too. Brothers and sisters, remember the faithfulness of our Savior Jesus and find again The full forgiveness your soul so badly needs. Let's pray.